Broadcasting live from an undisclosed location in the western foothills, you're listening to Open Ears, Maine. We want to hear your pandemic stories. To call in, dial area code 515-602-9747. That's 515-602-9747. The phone lines are now open. There is no such thing as a natural criminal, but men and women are daily bred to join the ranks of crime in various places. Cheap bars and dark alleys are among such breeding places. There are such jungles in cities throughout the nation today. And some exist because far too many of you decent citizens protest when the police raid them. Protest what you call this treatment of picturesque characters who add color to the local picture. The result has been a timidity on the part of many local law enforcement agencies. For the police are public servants, and you are the public. You can do your part to rid your community of these jungles. Let your police know you want them removed, and they'll do the job. Welcome to Episode 16 of Open Ears, Maine. It is Tuesday, June 2nd. 2020, we're in the midst of some sad days, angry days, because of the inherent injustices of America, because of killer cops, weak leadership, and wannabe dictators, because of institutional racism. As a white male and beneficiary of unmeasurable white privilege, I'll never be able to actually understand what people of color experience on a daily basis due to the systematic oppression by modern capitalism and other evils. And now, even worse, is their having to witness and endure the outright fascism of Donald Trump and his cult of idiots and enablers. And yet the turnout at the massive protests shows that the people truly are the power. Sure, the cops have the pepper spray and the tear gas, the rubber bullets and the truncheons. However, the face shields, the jackboots, and billy clubs ultimately are no match for the masses and the classes united, the numbers and righteousness will win in the end. I believe in revolution and understand the need and desire to fight back when pushed and when injustice is exposed. And despite the anger and fear of these tumultuous times, I also trust in the resilience of hope and love and the kindness we're all capable of. And I'm eager to witness who will come forward and which leaders will be born of these trials and tribulations. I live deep in the woods, long since having moved far away from the loud streets and the marches. My disgust for the white patriarchy, however, remains strong, and has me rooting for a matriarchal society even more. It's time, obviously, for some female energy 
in order to heal the wounds and put out the fires. Fortunately, there are many young, strong women out there, righteous, angry, and smart. Most definitely smarter than the dumb, white, antiquated collective ego that's poisoned the planet and tortured the masses into despair. These new leaders, emerging with the encouragement and support of their allies and comrades, hopefully, will be graced with the strength and wisdom to figure out, collectively, some sort of solution to this madness and mess. On Thursday's show, we'll return to this topic with a special guest that has lots of experience and insight into the struggle against oppression and tyranny. Reza Jalali, an activist, writer, and humanitarian, will be joining us to discuss police brutality, the George Floyd murder, and protest, along with his perspective on how COVID-19 is impacting Maine's immigrant and refugee community. That's on Thursday's program. On today's Open Ears Maine, however, we're still focused on the pandemic, and we'll talk to a Maine schooner captain from Rockland about the coronavirus's impact on his industry. I'm your host, Crash Berry, editor-at-large for Mainer, the magazine and website at mainernews.com. Do you listen to true crime podcasts? If so, please check out Devils in Dirtbags. That's my 13-part investigation of the child-molesting priests of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Springfield, Massachusetts. It's a sad, sad story that needed telling. Visit devilsanddirtbags.com to listen or download the show wherever you download, but only if you want to be even more depressed about the evil that lurks among us. Now, the numbers. According to Maine's Center for Disease Control, there have been 2,000. 377 cases connected to the coronavirus in Maine. At least 94 Mainers have died with COVID-19. And to date, 1,646 residents have recovered from the illness. Also, Governor Janet Mills, during a presidential conference call with the nation's governors, asked Donald Trump to reconsider his rumored trip to Guilford, Maine, to visit a medical swab manufacturer, and like a spoiled brat, Trump doubled down and will apparently show up in Piscataquis County on Friday. There will be many protesters, I'm told by organizers, so that's bound to get interesting, but not interesting enough to entice me to leave my undisclosed location in the western foothills. But if you intend to attend and want to serve as my on-the-scene correspondent, please drop me an email at crash at crashberry.com. Coming up next on today's program is a conversation with Captain Noah Barnes, a longtime friend of mine who happens to be a hell of a sailor and the owner, along with his wife Jane, of two iconic Maine schooners and longtime members of Maine's windjamming fleet, and we'll hear about the unique situation faced by schooner captains and how the summer of COVID 
threatens to severely hurt the industry. We'll be right back with Captain Noah Barnes. Ladies and gentlemen, the chief hope of our enemies is to divide the United States along racial and religious lines and thereby conquer us. Let's not spread prejudice. A divided America is a weak America. Through our behavior, we encourage the respect of our children and make them better neighbors to all races and religions. Remind them that being good neighbors has helped make our country great and kept her free. Thank you. Welcome back to Open Ears, Maine. Joining us now is Captain Noah Barnes, co-owner of the schooner Ladona and the infamous Stephen Tabor, which happens to be the oldest sailing vessel in continuous service in the United States of any kind, sailing since 1871. Captain Barnes, what has COVID-19 done to the sailing schedule of Maine's Windjammer fleet? Crashberry, it's good to talk to you. I will say that the Tabor is going to be 150 years old next year, and she's been operating every year as a kind of a hard scrabble commercial enterprise since, like you said, 1871. And I'll be damned if this is the first year, one year shy of 150, that she doesn't get to earn her keep. So we're going to go sailing uh, one way or another. But right now, it looks like the out-of-state commerce, which makes up about 97% of our business, is forbidden without a 14-day self-quarantine in-state until September 1st. So that's the first day that we can really do what we do, which is a bit of a hardship for us. I know that we're in really good company in terms of having our business plan shalala hell by this, by this uh, whatever it is we're going to call this, the pandemic, but we're hurting. And uh, I would say that without really caring to speak for every member of our industry, say, Maine's Windjammers, which I would define as multi-day trips on cool, big old sailing boats, we're struggling to figure out how to keep our vessels and stay in business. What financial impact does the Windjammer fleet have on Maine? Is there a number that you guys like to throw around? You know, we've done a couple of studies, um, none of them more recent than eight or ten years ago. I would feel comfortable right now saying we have several millions of dollars of direct economic impact into the towns where we operate out of. In terms of sort of, I don't know, visual and emotional impact, we probably punch a little bit beyond our weight in terms of the interest that the big sailing vessels up here in, in mid-coast Maine generate for visuals and publicity and sort of general interest in tourism up here. We're economic drivers for our local towns. We're economic drivers. We're boosters of the lobster fishing industry. We're boosters for ecotourism in Maine, where I think it might be the only private business that's depicted on national currency. I mean, Victory Chimes is on the state quarter. So we don't like to pat ourselves on the back too much, but I think we're a very visible part of what tourism in Maine is about in the summertime. And we're really in it just to sort of be ambassadors for the coast of Maine. You know, we take people sailing on these big old boats and spend most of our time and most of our money maintaining the boats without having the benefit of being uh, 501c3s. You know, none of these boats up here, nonprofits. We don't ask for much and we don't hold cocktail parties to buy new mainsails and stuff. We just 
we like people to come sailing and they give us a little bit of money and we take them sailing and and uh, hopefully we we create some good vibes for the state with minimal environmental impact and um, we create uh, I don't know evangelists I guess for uh, for this stunning coastline that we have. I've always had a good time on the schooners way back in the olden days. I remember doing a, a really huge raft up and was able to go on many, many, many of the schooners. And every time is a great time. Just for the listeners who may not know what it's like to be on a windjammer, and yours specifically, uh, and I want to talk about the Stephen Tabor, a sailing vessel with no engine. We keep it real that way. We have a like a 110-foot schooner. We have no inboard engine. We go sailing. We have a yawl boat that can push and tow us out of the harbor, but we sail. We sail from place to place, and there's something sort of intrinsically good about arriving at a harbor under sail. It's a cool way to arrive. I will say arriving on horseback is pretty cool. Arriving on a sailboat, very, very cool. Arriving on a sailboat to a uh, uninhabited island for a lobster bake. That's one of the highlights of your trips. I mean, that's got to be an amazing experience for most people. Yeah, that's a treat. We can bring people to places they can only get if they have a, their own vessel or, or a friend with a lobster boat or a schooner. And to sail in and then go ashore to a completely deserted island and have a beautiful picnic on the beach and um, have some time to explore and then pack it all up and go sleep in your cozy bunk at night with no ambient light around, really, and uh, nothing to spoil the view of the stars in the Milky Way and uh, nothing but the sound of the, the waves lapping the hull. I've been doing this for a long time, and it, it still kind of gets me. Amazing stars with uh, not being spoiled by any city light is a very special thing that Maine has to offer that most of the country doesn't have left. But let's talk about COVID-19 again. When did you begin to realize that this summer was probably going to be impacted by the pandemic? We started hearing about the cruise ships, right? We started hearing about vessels being denied entry into ports abroad. And that's when it started to dawn on us that although what we do is a far cry from 1,500 or, or 3,000 people on a mostly inside boat together, that's not our thing. But we started to realize at that point that this was going to start having an impact on people traveling at all. And as things develop, you start realizing that we can't move about the country as we would like. And we are going to have a hard time shaking hands and, and hosting in the sort of intimate way that we host. It's family style meals. And, and we're going to have to come up with some real alterations to the way that we operate. We've got a plan that we've come together as an industry to come up with ways that we can address these things on board. But until we have a vaccine and some widely available and accurate and short turnaround testing, I don't think the other dominoes are going to really fall in our favor. What was your reaction when you learned that Governor Janet Mills's reopening plan would basically put the kibosh on this year's schooner season? Well... I have a couple of different dialogues, and I'm still not comfortable saying that we should reopen and we should just open the floodgates because I have friends in Italy, because I do know the chance of overwhelming our healthcare system is there. On the other hand, my parents, who ran the schooner for 25 years, Ken and Alan Barnes, are sort of like, you know, it's really nice and cute and everything that you guys are keeping us safe, but, you know, why don't we just stay home being the at-risk group? So I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on TV. 
I happen to tune in as often as I can during the workday to listen in the afternoon to Dr. Shaw come on and answer questions. I think he's doing a really great job of providing answers and leadership and being uh, candid uh, and forthcoming. On the other hand, there are certain things about our business, for example, our guests who come on board don't go anywhere by themselves without our direct involvement as the operators. So we can choose not to bring them to, for example, Stonington or Castine or Belfast. We can choose to take them only to places where they will encounter no other people. So provided that we can protect our crew and provided we, we can operate in a way that makes our guests safe, I feel that being on a windjammer, coming into the state, coming directly onto my schooner and leaving the dock and going for a trip is at least as effective as a self-policed mandatory 14-day quarantine for out-of-state visitors. And so right now we're trying to work with the state. We've had some discussions with some of the folks who are making policy, and we're trying to design a way to intelligently regulate our industry and recognize it as necessarily different from a restaurant, for example, or a hotel. What does that mean, intelligently design it? Why don't you talk about what those rules would look like? I, am, I, I may be speaking out of turn here, but I, I do think that our uh, industry has gotten together and discussed ways in which we might be able to operate safely while not offending the sort of evolving mores of the state of Maine and without upsetting our communities and providing some sort of assurance to our guests and our crew. But for example, say we had a private charter of people who had quarantined together from Vermont for two weeks and had provided us with an affidavit, gave us their guarantee that they would drive in their own vehicle directly to our wharf, get out of their vehicle, step onto our schooner, and we could leave the dock for a week-long trip. Or perhaps they had all been tested 72 hours before they stepped on board and could provide proof of a negative test result. Would then it be okay for us to take them sailing for a week? Once they're on the boat, their whereabouts are trackable and traceable, and they're not at their own leave to go into town and do what they will. They're on the vessel, and we have the ability to leave for a week with everything that we need without really needing to interact with anybody. Quarantined aboard the boat, so to speak. Yes, indeed. That's what we're suggesting is that they're cloistered and quarantined aboard the vessel while they're with us. A nautical tradition almost, if you think about it. Many vessels (laughs) globally have been quarantined over the years. Often when you pull into a port of call, unless liberty can be granted, unless customs, there's many times where people are forced to stay on a vessel. That's right. You hoist the Quebec flag and, and, and there you sit. Now, is our situation so drastically different than we expect a, a rubber stamp on that? No, but we'd like to be able to operate in August. You know, we're all, we've all written off June. We've all written off our May. Obviously, that's gone. And we've all, we all know that we're not operating in June. Would it be nice to be able to have July for Mainers and have August for guests who can provide some assurance to us and to the state of Maine that they are behaving rationally and not streaming packs of vectors coming into the state. I feel that our long-term and, and, uh, and rather thorough contact with our guests, 60 to 70% of whom are repeat and referrals. This isn't day sailing and it's not 
a nightclub. It's not a, it's not even a restaurant. Our guests are, are well known to us. So would we be able to operate? We have people who are waiting right now to find out if they can come and charter the vessel in August. And right now we have to say no. Did guests start canceling as news of the pandemic started to come in the forefront? We're getting a dozen phone calls a day from people who are canceling. We're normally very excited to hear the phone ring this time of year. Let's just leave it at that. And I hate to say it, but people hear 14-day quarantine and they say, how about 2021? And so there goes our revenue for 2020. And it wouldn't be as dire if we could close up shop and mothball the fleet. But the sad truth is that if you have a vessel of this scope and you need to maintain it to Coast Guard and indeed above Coast Guard standards, we're regulated very heavily by the federal government. It costs about a quarter of a million dollars a year just to maintain the vessel. If you're losing your revenue and it's still going to cost you, whether you take guests or not, still costs that much money to keep the vessel in good shape and from sinking at the dock. Everybody stays in the water. You don't, it's not good for vessels of this size, wooden vessels of this size to be hauled out. We were hauled, cable was hauled out at North End Shipyard for four months from November on to do some scheduled work, replace some timbers in a transom. And that was poorly timed on my part and a bit expensive. I don't regret doing the work, but it was, it was bad timing. Uh, but we've, it's done and that's behind us now. And now we're just looking to be able to recoup some of that very expensive work that we've done. And unfortunately, I think we're going to have to look to 2021. You know, at the end of the day, we will end up having to split one season worth of revenue between the two seasons. You also mentioned July as possible time for Mainers to sail with you. Does that fit under Janet Mills's rules? Could you start doing trips in July, provided they were Mainers? We could. And when, when the guidelines first came out, you know, although it's great that day sailors and, and charter boats of all kinds can operate starting July 1st, it did not take into account that 97% of our business is from out of state. And so while that may not be true for all industries on the water, it's certainly true of ours. And so allowing us to operate for July and August with 3% of our normal clientele we can scramble and we can and certainly do our best to invite and entice Mainers to, to have a staycation and check out the coastline. It's beautiful if you live here. It's beautiful if you're from away. And there's a shocking number of people, even in our hometown of Rockland, who've never really been on the water. But it's kind of small comfort economically to expect us to sort of cobble together a season out of that. It may not even cover our marginal costs. I mentioned that most of our costs in this industry are fixed, but it still does take time and energy and crew and payroll to actually suit up and take a charter sale. We'd be competing with the day sailor. That's not a great way to be a good neighbor. Be doing anything like pay what you can or any specials for Mainers or anything like that? That's something that we would consider. But I have to say at $280 a day, for three, really four meals and being on the Windjammer, I mean, that's, it's all inclusive. We don't do this sort of bait and switch cruise ship thing where you pay something and then for every umbrella drink, it's $20 and for going ashore, it's $50 and to 
use the climbing wall, it's $100. We don't do that. And so at the end of the day, price is the price and the margins are fairly slim as it is. Will we go out and do stuff just for fun if we have to? Yeah, we, I mean, we will do that. Would we invite the restaurant workers in Rockland to go for some sales? You bet we will. Will we be doing whatever good cause if we don't go sailing otherwise in July? We're going to go out and clean up some islands. That's what we're going to do. I know you to be a very law-abiding person. Actually, Captain Barnes, for the record, that's the real reason why I've never sailed on the Tabor is because you've made it clear to me that me and my devil's lettuce, I mean marijuana, wouldn't be allowed on board even though it's legal in the state of Maine. You understand, Crash, that I am not sanctimonious on that front at all. I, I just happen to be subject to the laws of the United States Coast Guard. You're federally regulated. So could you actually ignore the governor's orders and and be a pirate and start taking passengers out? I don't want to do that. I don't want to be in the position to do that. And there is a handful of reasons, not the least of which is I'm more or less a law-abiding citizen. But I don't want to put the state at odds with itself. And I am accountable I'm a merchant marine mariner, and I am bound in responsibility. I have a responsibility to my crew, and I have a responsibility to my guests to not leave the dock unless I'm fairly certain about my odds of doing so safely and responsibly. I mean, what we do is naturally unsafe. We're going sailing on a 50-ton, engineless, 150-year-old schooner in what is, everybody can agree, is sort of the double black diamond trail of sailing in America. <laughs> so my ability to process and deal with known risk, every mariner has that. Even going sailing at all is an act of optimism. You're pitting yourself against a bunch of things that seem unnatural and unsafe at the outset. My job is to do all of that and show my guests a really good time and make it look like fun. So what I don't need is I don't need to go sneaking around the backside of Governor Mills and, incidentally, the sort of overall mores of the state of Maine. I'm not going to do that. I know that you and your crew have been working on the vessels all spring. How and when did you decide to hire, even though you didn't have a season ahead of you? Well, we we hire our crew pretty well ahead of time because... We like to have the pick. And the hard thing was telling them for a couple of weeks that we really didn't know and to putting them off. So we started a month late when we knew that our sailing date was going to be pushed back from Memorial Day into June. And we waited and we actually applied for and received a PPP loan, which allowed us to and even sort of encouraged us and established that we had to carry a certain amount of payroll and so we took that and used that for the, for the month and a half or the two months that we used to, that we sand and paint everything and get everything ready for guests. And so when our crew showed up, we were able to go in and we figured at least we would make the cabins really, really, really well done this year. And so we did a lot of work, a lot of carpentry a lot of extra projects to make sure that they were really, really sort of pristine, easily cleanable. We did a lot of work on the surfaces to make sure that everything was easily sanitizable. 
And uh, we did a fair amount of carpentry just to make sure that everything was extra light, extra bright, more lights, better fixtures, things like that. And um, we're three quarters of the way through that project. We have about three weeks of PPP left. And um, we hope to get as much done as we can. We focused on stuff that we wouldn't have to redo again next year if we don't get to go sailing this year, because who knows? Honestly, Crash, it's the uncertainty that's the most exhausting part. We don't know still if there's going to be another outbreak or something else that prevents us from going sailing in September. Right now, we just like to get things together and get an August behind us so that we can have gone sailing and have done something. We always talk about vessels being seaworthy, but now you have to make them almost pandemic worthy. So uh, when we <laughs> look at schooners, they're wood. Okay, they're 100% wood and yeah. uh, heavily varnished. Yeah. Is that a easily sanitized surface? That's a good question. And we're right now we're, we're doing research about UV lights and foggers and how much turnaround time we should give ourselves in between trips. Obviously, we're building as much time in between trips as we can to make sure that we can take care of the cabins as well as we can. We do only carry, you know, Ladona carries 16, Tabor carries 22. These are not large crowds, but we are talking about setting aside one or two cabins just to carry fewer people and to have a place, God forbid, if somebody shows symptoms, just to have a place where they could be quarantined on board in case it comes to that, just so that we can have a place to, to offer somebody while we make our way to an evacuation point. The amount of detail and thought that has gone into how we can continue to operate, you know, and mind you, about half of our calls are like, would you just let us come sailing already? And there are some who call and say, you know, what are you going to do about this? Are we going to be eating down in the galley? You know, we have the ability to serve every meal up on deck. Does that mean you're going to want to eat on deck if it happens to be a rain shower? Or do we do two seatings in the galley just to give everybody a little distance? These are all operational protocols that we have been, you know, we've been taking great pains. We wrote a five-page document to send off to the governor just to see if there was some way that we could come up with and be part of the conversation for what laws will govern us this summer, what protocols will allow us to continue to do our job and do it safely and continue to take people out on the coast. Otherwise, we're all going to be stuck just waiting for the vaccine before things get back to anything that looks like normal. Was there any response from the governor's office about your five-page plan? We did have a conversation with a deputy commissioner, and she was terrific and sympathetic and uh, understands our business and what we're up against and was not certainly not on the phone call at liberty to share any insight as to whether or not we could get an answer. But we, we do have a little bit of a time frame crunch. Every week that goes by is another week eaten into our season. We're hoping that things change. You know, again, with the uncertainty, every four or five days, it seems that our world changes in some significant way. You know, I don't even want to talk about what's been happening in the last three days in this country. But, you know, four days ago, New Hampshire dropped its 14-day quarantine, just like that. And so we don't really know 
that seems to be the problem about this whole pandemic is we just don't know nothing about nothing. I spoke to some tattoo artists a couple of weeks ago who told me about people attempting to bribe them to give them tattoos during this pandemic when tattoo studios are closed. Have people been calling to bribe you to bring them out sailing? <laughs> we haven't. We haven't gotten an actual offer of a bribe. However, there have been several people who've been just adamant that if they showed up, they just if they could just show up, would we go with them? Please just start operating. Would you please? And I would say that most of them seem to be from states that maybe had opened I won't say prematurely because that's judgmental, but I would say earlier than some other states. And so I think perception of how serious this is and how we should tackle it as a state, as a nation, as a culture, as a civilization, vary widely. And so when people from like, we're not taking it very seriously world, call us and say, dude, captain, dude, man take us sailing. Just, just let us come up and, and just take us sailing. And we're in a place where if the store has a sign that says, please wear a mask, I put a mask on because that's the civilized thing to do from where I'm sitting. It begs the question, how far would you be willing to go outside of the mores of the state and the town and the county where you're living? Right now, I'm in Knox County. The count is way down in Knox County. And I have to say, I look around and I see people acting fairly responsibly in Knox County. Maybe that's the way we should play this. And so I'm less inclined to say, bring it on. Let's go sailing. I'm more of the track of let's work this out with the governor and with the smart people who are actually looking at data and went through more than stats 201 to figure out whether or not we should do this. So I'm a let's listen to the experts kind of guy, I guess, in this. And uh, for now, probably not entertaining the idea of any side bribes. However, we really, really want to go sailing. So we're going to plan on going sailing. We're going to go sailing for Mainers in July. And hopefully the other shoe drops and we can take everybody with some really nice protocols in place. Everybody agrees to play by, and we can actually start operating in August. It would do us a load of good. You know, right now, it's a pretty crazy time. You have a son, Oscar. How old is Oscar these days? Oscar's 11 now. He just graduated from fifth grade. He's now a middle schooler, although who really knows what graduation looks like anymore? <laughs> he has a lot more responsibilities than most kids his age. For the listeners, could you tell us what his job is in connection to the schooner? <laughs> For those of your listeners who don't really, we're still trying to piece together what the hell it is we do. We, we take 22 people out for four day trips and six day trips on the coast of Maine. We have about 2,200 islands in our cruising ground. It's an unplanned, unscripted sailing adventure from the time we leave the dock until the time we come back. We've never repeated a trip. We go sailing. We sail for five or six or seven hours a day. We drop anchor. There are places where we can go ashore. There's small boats and paddle boards and little sailing dinghies that we bring with us. We eat very well. We play a little music and uh, generally a, a sense of camaraderie and sort of easy family, usually sparked by the wine that we serve every night. 
evolves amongst the guests. And by the time we come back, it's been sort of a transformative experience for the guests. Many people have come back time and time again, but even for those first timers, it tends to be an affecting vacation. We live in an age of sort of more and more corporatizing of your vacation time. The cruise ships have gone from 1,500 passengers to about 4,000 passengers. There's really nothing that's not unscripted about most of the things that you're being offered at a luxury hotel or a all-inclusive resort or a cruise ship. This is truly genuine outdoor adventure that's pretty much off the cuff. And the only thing that we plan on is just eating really well three or four times a day. I have this kid who's grown up in this from the time when he could spend a night without squalling his face off. We've been taking him on the boat. And so he's grown up in this environment where um, most of his company is, is adults, which doesn't really seem to bother him too much. And he's jumped in with the crew. And with varying degrees of success, I would say, uh, become a member of, of the hosting department. He definitely knows his way around the schooner. He can definitely drive our yawl boat. He's very at home with a tiller as well as the wheel and uh, scrambles all over the rigging and is, I would say, more or less uh, an asset. He's, uh, you know, between nine and ten, I think he firmly crossed the line between liability and asset. I'll say that. <laughs> and I love having him on board. And he's a hoot. He's a funny kid. And he delights in taking people sailing and rowing. And uh, he's a bit of a gymnast aloft, and, and uh, I'm sure we'll have to talk about him at, of this at some point. But he's a, he enjoys showing off his knowledge and his ability on board. He's a, and he's a, he's funny as a stitch, man. I'm just, we're just trying to put him to bed now. Well, he's definitely his old man's kid. Uh, you were born, well, you weren't born on the schooner, but were you maybe six or seven when your parents started sailing? That's right. That's right. We moved up to Maine when I was six. And I started sailing with mom and dad when I was seven. And um, I loved it. I loved it. I loved it right up to the point where I realized as a teenager, I didn't want to spend every minute of every summer within 65 feet of my parents. Um, <laughs> I never really strayed far from the sea. I ended up, for better or for worse, uh, getting a captain's license when I was I don't know, 20, 21, and have been periodically called back ever since. I came back up here, I don't know, 16 years ago now. From uh, from trying and failing at several other things, and took over the business from them. Well, I can't believe it's been 16 years. I, I mean, I know. you and I have known each other for probably a quarter century almost. Back to the kid, though. During the lead up to the cancellation of this of the summer trips, was he informed? Were you telling him? Were you and Jane kind of keeping him in the loop of what's going on? I wish I could say we sat him down and said, "Son, you understand what's going on." We didn't really do that mostly because it's not a very big house and he could hear every phone conversation that Jane, my lovely and incredibly patient and diligent wife, who's basically fielding all the phone calls. She has at least a dozen conversations a day that cover the full gamut of what we know and what we don't know and how we're thinking about it and what we're doing about it and how we're planning for it. And so Oscar, not being very, very much out of earshot during this delightful period of homeschooling, has been fully privy to everything that's going on in the family. And uh, he doesn't miss anything. He doesn't miss anything. He hears 
everything. So, you know, when he's had questions, he's asked them, but I think most of his questions he answers for himself. Okay, but now let's shift to an even sadder topic. What about the riots and the murder of George Floyd by the Minneapolis cops? It's hard to back up enough to describe to him why and how. Like, it really is. He's he's already, I mean, he's like on the cusp of starting to be manly, grown-uply in so many ways, and yet his his ability to process why that's happening, you know, certainly in this incredibly sheltered place that we live, you know, he doesn't, he, it doesn't process. And so I'm a little bit at a loss for how to describe to him in the most simplest terms, why you can talk about slavery. You can talk about socioeconomic history. You can talk about stuff. Just tonight, tonight we watched Tubman. I don't know what else to do in our leisure off hours, like not at school, not lecturing or beating him over the head with stuff time, other than to come up with something other than watching Sonic the Hedgehog to use some time to come up with something to, to give him a visceral sense of where's this coming from? You know, we'll continue to struggle with this and to try. You know, I don't, I, we, we have frank discussions with him about it, but you can almost see his failure to comprehend how and why this is going on. It doesn't really get through because he has not seen it. He, he's understood what's not fair on such a paper-thin level in his life. And I almost feel like anything shy of living with some deeply structural piece of unfairness, anything shy of that is not going to do it. We're in a bit of a bubble in all ways. Like, yes, our business is suffering. Yes, we're hurting. We're not starving. You talk about being in a bubble uh, Rockland is your home port, has been forever. What's the mid-coast been like during the pandemic? Basically decent. I mean, we live in a state that doesn't spook easily, is more or less like in the upper percentile of being competent to change a tire and fix your own shingles and to point up a crumbling stone wall there are parts of this country that don't know how to bake bread. Like nobody knows how to bake. <laughs> there's, there's whole swaths of the world that think Panera is a bakery and nothing against Panera when you're like trying to get from point A to point B on an interstate. But uh, we live in this basically competent, relatively cheerful place. Like say what you will about dour New Englanders, you know, more or less anybody with a chainsaw is going to come over and help you after a storm blows a tree down on your house, you know, that doesn't happen in parts of the world that I've lived in. So what's it like in Rockland? It's trundling along. We all, like our, our, our friends in the hospitality business, are suffering. Our friends who are bartenders are suffering. But most people are making a pretty good go of it and trying to just do a little more kayaking and a little less complaining. What are you hearing from people down on the docks? Do they think Governor Mills 
is doing a good job, a bad job, complaints, compliments about her? What are you hearing? There's a wide range of political tendencies from boat owners and people in the maritime industries. And I would say there's a certain amount of, of fist shaking and head shaking. Uh, I don't think you can argue with the fact that for one reason or another, Maine, Maine is kind of winning at this a little bit more than some states in terms of keeping our numbers down. But it does come at a cost. I mean, there is a cost associated with sheltering in place and not opening up. So having not really made up my mind and not having enough uh, information at my fingertips and having processed it to say one way or another, my friends and the, say, the conversations that I have down in the docks are, I hope we can come up with some way to salvage our summer. I, I hope that there's some way that will allow us to take care of our boats. Because at the end of the day, none of us are in this industry for the money. None of us. It's not lucrative. does, however, mean we get to go sailing for a living and pretend to be kings of our own small, tiny, floating kingdoms. <laughs> and we get to show people a good time. You're a very jovial host, and it must be fun for you to have this as a job as opposed to uh, slinging bait or working in an office pushing papers somewhere. <laughs> well, I've... I've uh, I have I have both slung bait and push papers, and uh, I like this way more. Uh, any thoughts on how Trump is handling the pandemic? I don't see a lot of real firm leadership coming out of the White House, and and I I would like to leave it at that, but I really uh, I don't know if it's the uh, if it's the, the the news outlets that I listen to uh, and and read, uh, but I try and keep a pretty broad. A spectrum of things coming at me, but um, I have to say I'm I'm not uh, I'm not overwhelmed. Uh, it would be nice to have some leadership and some graciousness and some uh, humility and some humanity. Well, I don't think you're going to see that anytime soon, pal. Um, back to the scooter fleet. Thoughts on the long-term impact? Uh, you're hoping that you're going to be able to sail this summer, but if the summer's a total bust. Can the Windjammer fleet recover? I don't know. I think it's a uh, it, it's marginal enough. I think I mentioned before that these are all working, going economic concerns with, in more than half the cases, operating a national historic landmark. So in in pretty much a hundred percent of the rest of the world, these would be nonprofits, and we'd be asking for donations to help keep them running. And Every single one of the, these vessels, I mean, 100% of the main Windjammer Association, and there's a, several others that aren't actually in the association that also this describes, but we're all loath to stick our hand out and ask for anything. But if we don't get to operate this season, I'm not afraid to say if Maine wants to have the largest fleet of traditional vessels sailing from our shores and being ambassadors for Maine and ecotourism and being the sort of de facto training ground for young big boat sailors, we might need some help. We've been at this for a long time. I've been in business. I bought the, I bought the boats for my parents 17 years ago. Um, we rebuilt Ladona five years ago now. We're probably going to make it. Not going to be easy. 
we'll have to cut down on some plans and, you know, a, a, a slim margin situation gets a little slimmer. There are some boats that are either in transition right now or are, have recently been transitioned or have not enjoyed uninterrupted stretch of success as we have that may not make it. And it breaks my heart because all of these boats for me are old friends. I've known them for, you know, four decades. And uh, it would be a shame to see these proud for-profit enterprises end up either becoming nonprofits or at worst becoming oyster bars, which is, if anybody's been paying attention to this, has been the trend. Spirit of Massachusetts, oyster bar. Sherman's Wicker, oyster bar. You mean you know, literally an oyster you know, bar? Then to the dock forever, never to go okay. sailing again with their down below deck spaces converted into serving platforms and permanent awnings put in so that the decks, so that the people can come and have dinner on them without ever leaving the dock. You know, I don't want to malign the people who are running these, these businesses. I just would like to say I would rather that the spirit of Massachusetts was still out coming up here to the great schooner race in July every summer and showing us her graceful shear line rather than being chained to the dock. It's heartbreaking. Are vessels like this mortgageable? Do, do captains or owners carry mortgages on these vessels? Yeah, in, in some cases they are. We were able to purchase the Tabor and pay her off in 10 years. I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. But it's also a fairly modest-sized vessel that happened to be handed off to me in decent shape by owners who had taken care of her really well and who ran a, ran a great business. I got handed a turnkey business. I was lucky. I acknowledge that. But there are people right now who are attempting to get into the business, bless their souls, and will have a tough go of it because 2021 will be their first year of operation. I wish them the best. You mentioned that schooner captains aren't ones to come forward usually with their hats uh, begging for change. But it does seem like this is an appropriate use of state funds to bail out the industry, especially considering there's other industries, uh, Bath Ironworks, et cetera, that we've been very generous with taxpayer money over the years. Well, you know, I don't want to go up against BIW. There's a lot of workers there. And uh, far be it for me to criticize the military industrial complex. But um, I wouldn't mind getting somewhere in the line ahead of internationally flagged cruise ships, for example, but it wouldn't take much to make a meaningful difference to these vessels. We hauled out this last winter. We spent tens and tens of thousands of dollars on black locust and oak and ship spikes. Never mind the labor it took. You know, eight people for four months. That's some payroll, but it's still not a terribly significant amount considering we're a national historic landmark. Now, we burned through the war chests from 2017, 2018, 2019, and we spent 2020's, you know, first half of that season's money to affect a necessary rebuild of stuff that had not been replaced or worked on since 1871. I'm proud that we did that, but it does seem odd that if you have a National Historic Landmark building and you have a law office in it, you get tax breaks as long as you put windows back with the right number of millions. 
it will be interesting to see if there's any federal money for an industry that doesn't have lobbyists in Washington, D.C. Yeah, and the cruise ship industry. And again, I don't want to set I don't I don't want to speak out of resentment and I certainly don't want to throw any other industry under the bus. But it would be nice if there was some recognition for this industry's cultural and historical significance along those lines. Let's end this interview on a positive note. Could you tell us what your fall sailing schedule is looking like? All right. Look, if you want to go sailing and you're from Maine, look to July, second half, second half of July into August at this point, because that's when we can take you sailing. The sailing is gorgeous. If you want to go sailing in September, we pushed most of our June and July program that we won't be able to have, like the Great Schooner Race and some of our awesome music trips that we do with Chickie and the Charlie Nobles. We're pushing that into September. And so September with the most beautiful sailing of the entire year. And because we're only taking 22 people at a time or 15, 16 people at a time on the schooners, I feel like we can share this. If you want to see the splendor of and feel the wind in your hair and what it feels like when the boat heels over and just the horsepower of the sails kicks in, it plucks a part of your body that you didn't know you had. You just come up here in September and go sailing. The sun goes down a little early, the stars come out, the high-pressure system washes all of the moisture out of the atmosphere, and you can see the stars. I mean, you can see the Milky Way reflected in the water. It's ridiculous. That best wish is peace on Earth. Much of Reynolds' expanding aluminum production now goes to the defense of the nation, the defense of our free world. But the ultimate aim is peace always. And the great destiny of light, strong, rust-proof Reynolds aluminum lies in peaceful progress. The Reynolds Metals Company looks forward to the day when all aluminum production can be turned to constructive uses. In a future when the inspired hope of Christmas shall be realized. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. I want to thank the skipper, my pal Noah, for his insight on pandemic sailing and his point of view on what the state can do to help the schooner fleet. The windjammers are an important part of our maritime and coastal heritage, and it would be terrible to lose any of them, so let's hope a solution, or failing that, a bailout of sorts from the feds or the state, can help the schooner industry stay afloat. We want to hear your pandemic stories. Do you have a tale to tell? Are you aware of a hero or a heel, a saint or a sinner? Let me know about it. Drop me a line at crash at crashberry.com. Tune in Thursday for our special guest, Raise a Jalali. Until then, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.